All right, on today's episode, we have the incredible Nirayal. We talk about distraction and how to maximize your life to avoid it. But we talk about what is distraction, how the opposite of distraction is not focused, the most dangerous form of distraction, the formula to create time management processes that are predicated on you having a plan to manage it to it actually becoming successful, uh, blamers, shamers, and claimers, how we do not control our feelings, three techniques that you can use immediately to create the results and become indistractable, and Nier's incredible 10-minute rule. This one's a favorite of mine. It's absolutely incredible. We have to play it again because it's kind of old and we're bringing it back up because everybody's been asking for these questions. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Are you ready to ethically scale your business? Good. Because this is the Mind of George podcast, where relationships beat algorithms and depth is the only direction when it comes to ethically scaling your business. Each Monday and Friday, I'll be the guy between your ears in the hoodie and pink shoes guiding you home, giving you the tools to extract, honor, and amplify your genius so you can be the light for your customers. Sound fabulous? Cool. Let's get into the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mind of George Shaw. The best way that I can introduce this guest is I went swim fan like Ryan Felipe swim fan on this gentleman for quite a long time. And I read the blog, I read the newsletter, I read every single book that he puts out and is probably one of the cornerstone mentors or teachers in my business and all my students' business that I've never met. And psychology, technology, business combined into one. He got more of his education in the School of Hard Knocks, but also ended up going to Stanford, has probably made every sound investment that you could make, and they all somehow are magical tools that I've used. So I feel like I've met my spirit animal in a more organized, successful version that's coming to me all the way from the other side of the world. And he's also an author of two absolutely amazing books that I love, which is Hooked and Indistractable. So with that, it should give it away. And if it doesn't, I don't know what's wrong with you. Go look them up. But with today, I'd love to invite my friend, Nir. Welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I'm honored. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, and I'll say it officially on camera and on recording, and I will say it so I am full screen for everybody. There is one blog post that you have on your blog that has single-handedly made me more money and impact for myself and my students than anything else I've ever used because it's about time blocking. And it was probably one of the best gifts that you gave the entrepreneurial world. Wow. You saying that is the best gift an author can ever receive. That is catnip for us authors to hear that we're having an impact and that people are using what we write. And I, I write for myself, to be perfectly honest. I, I look for solutions to problem having in my own life. And when I did this research to write Indistractable, it absolutely changed every single aspect of my life, whether it's my physical health, my mental health, uh, my emotional well-being, my relationships, my business success. No area of my life was not impacted by this ability to become what I call indistractable, the ability to control our attention, which is also our ability to choose our life. Yeah. And, and normally, and I love this because normally at the beginning of the podcast, I'm going to give you a pass on this one because I'm going to guide this one. But I normally ask people, when you look back at your career and your life, like what was the biggest mistake that you ever made, but I know the answer and I want this one because I'm gonna answer this for me and I want like your expert in opinion. I swear for 12 years of my life as an entrepreneur, my biggest mistake was letting the outside world influence everything Man. I did every day. Oh, you are a member of an illustrious club, my friend. <laughs> we are both members of this club. 
And, and that so, was a hard yeah. lesson to learn. Yeah, yeah. And so when, when you think about that, I remember Hooked and I loved it. And then I remember reading your blog and I even remember like the schedule planner and everything else. And then it all got put together. And I realized like a lot of what I was teaching came from you, like protecting myself, protecting my gift and allowing myself the space to be my genius. But can you talk about like how you got to that point? Because you write for you. And you built these things for you. And so I think you solved a massive problem, but I'd love to hear from your experience and like how you recommend people going about that. Sure. So my story when it came to writing Indistractable really started about uh, six years ago. I was with my daughter who's 12 years old uh, now, but at the time she was about six years old then. And we had this beautiful afternoon plan. We just had this day together, some daddy daughter time together. And I remember we had this book of activities that we could do together. One of the activities was build a paper airplane, do the Sudoku puzzle, all kinds of different activities. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim but I can't tell you what my daughter said because in that moment, for whatever stupid reason, I was on my phone checking something or another. And by the time I looked up, she was gone. She left the room because I was sending a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And if I'm honest with you, it didn't just happen that one time. And it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, I'm gonna work on this big project. And somehow 20, 30, 40 minutes later, I'm doing everything but the thing I said I was going to do. It would happen when I would say, I'm going to exercise. We all know how important it is to take care of your body, take care of your health, eat. Okay, I'm going to go to the gym today, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm going to eat, but I didn't. And so day after day, I kept asking myself, wait a minute, if I know what to do, why don't I just do it? And I think this is the big myth or lie around self-help these days that in order to sell more self-help books, Authors need to make you think that there's some secret that you don't know, right? That if you're going to buy a, a diet book, it can't just tell you eat, write, and exercise. That's a very short book. <laughs> but that's it. Does anybody not know that chocolate cake is not as healthy as a healthy salad? We all know that. Does anybody not know that if you want to do better at your job, guess what? You have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. Does anybody not know that to have better relationships, you have to be fully present with the people you love? Does anybody not know this? We know this. The question is not, how do we know some magical secret that we already know? The question is, why, despite knowing what we need to do, why do we keep getting in our own way? The problem these days is that we keep getting distracted. And so that's why I wanted to gain this superpower that if you ask me what superpower I would most want, back to my daughter's question, it would be the power to do as I say, to follow through, to choose my attention, to control my life by deciding in advance how I want to spend my time. That is the power to become indistractable. My heart tugged a little bit because I remember reading about that. And my son just turned four and my daughter is about to turn 16. And there was this point when he was like three years old and this was only like a year ago. And I'm pretty good about being here and present. And he just looked at me and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Daddy, can you play or do you have to work? And it was like this wrench because, and I don't know about you, but I think you're going to relate to this. Like I believed my own story so long that I was doing this for my family, that I was working mm -hmm. hard for my family and being quote unquote, this distracted for my family. But yet my family right in front of me wasn't asking for any of that. Yeah, no, this is such a great point. 
And so when you notice that and you recognize that, right, because this book took you six years, which is something I'm working on. I'm like, can I get it done right now? But it took you six years. What was that process like to go from recognizing that to your brain always being out there preoccupied? How did you start to put that into place? Because obviously it's not an overnight shift, but I would love to hear that transition, like what you really focused on. Sure. And and to be clear, I'm not anti-working. Well, no, no, none of us are. Yeah, if you want to be productive, if you want to spend time in the office, if you want to build your business, I'm not averse to any of that. I'm not saying that people should spend more time with their kids than at work. That's up to you and your values. And that's why, you know, it's really important for me to help people understand. I don't want to tell you what to do. Mm. If you want to play video games all day, great. That's no problem. The difference is I want you to do whatever it is you want to do with intent. Because if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. The social media companies, your boss, your kids, somebody is going to decide for you how you want to spend your time and how you are going to spend your life if you don't decide for yourself up front. So I want to help you live according to your values, no matter what your values are. So I'm not one of these chicken little tech critics that says, oh, social media is bad. It's melting your brain. It's hijacking your brain. Rubbish. That's ridiculous. Anything you want to do, even the fun stuff online is great. You can do those things but do them according to your schedule and according to your values, not the social media companies, not somebody else's values and calendar. Yeah, yeah. And actually, by the way, that talk, I think you gave that talk like three years ago or so, like how we made the enemy technology, like we made social media the energy, the enemy. And I loved your take on it because the truth was, is that it was my failure to plan that allowed me to place blame on social media, like to not go with intent and, and to not have all that. So when you, And just so I'm clear, I love working. I like working to have an impact and I love what I do and I'm passionate about what I do. But when you started that and realized, okay, I'm going to have to create harmony right in here. I'm going to be present with my daughter. I'm going to do that. How did you go about creating this container to become indistractable? What was that process like for you? Yeah. So the first step was really understanding what is distraction. And I thought this was one of these terms that everybody thinks they know. We all know what distraction is, but I I found I didn't. (laughs) And words really matter. And so I think defining what is distraction is super important. So the best way to understand what distraction is to understand what distraction is not. So if you ask most people, what's the opposite of distraction? Think for yourself here for a minute. What is the opposite of distraction? Most people will say it's focus, obviously, but that's wrong. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, The origin of the word shares the same root with its opposite, which is traction. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do. Things that you do with intent, things that help you live according to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that pulls you further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important because what this means is that any action can be traction or distraction. All right, let me give you a perfect example. Every day when I would sit down at my desk at work, I would say, okay, I've got that big project. I have that blog post I need to write. I have that RFP. I have that big thing that I've been delaying that I've been procrastinating on. I really need to work on that. So I'm going to start. Nothing's going to get in my way. No potential distractions. I'm not going to procrastinate anymore. Here I go. 
But first, let me just check some email for a quick minute. Let me check off those easy things on my to-do list just to get some momentum going. That's productive. Isn't that a work-related task? I got to check email, right? That's part of my job. And here's the thing. I didn't realize that is the most dangerous form of distraction. Because if you're playing some video game at your desk, you know that's not what you're supposed to be doing. But if you're checking email or Slack channels or ticking off stupid things on your to-do list that are easy and fun to do, it feels productive even though it is just as much of a distraction because that's not what you said you were going to do with your time. And the reason this is so pernicious is that it distracts us by tricking us into doing the easy and urgent stuff rather than the important tasks. And so that's why that's so dangerous. The other side of the, of the coin is that anything can be traction. So as we said before, I'm not here to judge people and the way they spend their time. If you want to spend time on social media or watching YouTube videos or Netflix or video games, I don't care. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. Again, as long as you do it on your schedule. So anything can be distraction and anything can be traction. So when you ask for me, how did I start this? I started by turning my values into time. And this is incredibly important because values are another one of these words that people think they know what that word means, but they really don't. I certainly didn't. To me, the definition of values are attributes of the person you want to become. Attributes of the person you want to become. So if you want to see what someone's real values are, don't listen to what they say. Look at two things. Look at how they spend their time and how they spend their money. And if you think about it, the language we use around these two things are very similar. We pay attention, just like we pay with money. We spend time, just like we spend money. These are two things that reflect our values. And so just as we wouldn't just give people $100 bills on the corner if they ask for it, why is it that with our time and attention, we give it to anyone, anybody who wants it? Oh, crazy thing happened on Twitter. Here you go. President some, said something ridiculous. Okay. My boss wants this. My kids want that. Sure. Here, take it. Take as much of my time and attention as you want. That stuff has value. And so we need to start protecting it and, and planning for it. And so that's why it's so important to turn our values into time, because the only way to call something a distraction is to know what it distracted you from. How many of us run around all day? At the end of the day, we say, oh my gosh, I didn't finish what I needed to do. What I got so distracted today, right? The news was this and my kids wanted that and my boss said this and I didn't do what I needed to do. But then when you ask people, okay, what did you get distracted from? What was on your calendar? It's blank. <laughs> There's nothing on the calendar. It's white space. So you cannot call something a distraction unless what it distracted you from, which is why, back to what you mentioned earlier, this time boxing technique is so important. Turning your values into time. Yeah, I'm like, this is like a masterclass for me. I feel like I just get a fast forward button of all your content in one. This is a gift, but you just, like you just rocked my soul for a second because one of the things that I did, like I, I tell people very openly, like I was on a book tour with a 22 week New York Times bestseller, number one app in the world yet, but my calendar was blank. And I can mm. tell you what I did every day. And I would be like, what did I get done? And I would just rattle off anything that I could spit off the top of my head to find some semblance of value. But the truth was, is that I was so disconnected from it. I didn't know. And when you said earlier about the most dangerous part is, oh, we would do email. Like I was on book tour. Like I was doing book signings and doing marketing and literally I had convinced myself with all this dissonance that what I was doing was being effective, but I actually was avoiding 
all of the things that would have moved the needle. And so I feel like I'm getting like a soul lesson right now. I feel validated and excited at the same time. <laughs> totally. And, and we, again, we are members of the same club here. I did this all the time. I ran so fast yeah. in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's, it, it, exactly. I feel it's like talking to myself and just somebody that can organize ideas better because it was a lot of it because there were times what I experienced, and maybe you've experienced this as well, because there were levels of it, right? Like I could hustle myself to a level and be distracted, but then it would start to eat itself. It would start to cannibalize itself. And I couldn't out hustle the bad habits or the lack of focus or the lack of distraction. And one of the things that I started realizing, and for me is that I, I didn't, it took me a long time to adopt time blocking. And I had to, I'm one of those addictive people, right? I'm like, got to do all of it at once. And so my win was like just doing two things a day, like putting my workout on my calendar, putting blocks of calls and, and working on the space. But something interesting happened to me when I started doing that. Whenever I time blocked external stuff, I was always good. I was like, I'm here because it's my word. It's how people value me. They have this opinion in me. But then I would start to get distracted by internal triggers. And yes. when, when I had yes. my calendar time blocking, that's my path. Like that webinar, that email, that RFP, like that input. And then I would come up with every reason to do it, even when it was on my calendar. And I would be like pulled in 8 million directions. And you talk about internal triggers a lot. And so I would love kind of your input and your thoughts around that, because that one took me a long time to crack. Sure. This is super important. So let's go back to what we talked about earlier around yeah. traction yeah. and distraction, right? So if you can picture a number line, with traction to the right, distraction to the left. And now we have to ask ourselves, what prompts us to take these actions, right? So we have two types of triggers. So imagine an arrow point, two arrows pointing in, one from the top, one to the bottom, bisecting this line. And so we have what we call external triggers, which can lead us towards traction or distraction. So we've got our traction, we've got distraction. Now we've got the things that prompt us to take these actions. We have what we call external triggers, and internal triggers. External triggers are these usual suspects. These are the pings, the dings, the rings, everything in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. And this is what people tend to blame. We tend to blame our phones, our computers, our kids, our boss, our coworkers, all the stuff outside of us. But in fact, that is not the leading cause of distraction. I actually just saw a study this morning that said that 90% that of the reason people check their phones is not an external trigger. It's not because of the pings and dings. Shoot, did the camera just go out again? No, I gotcha, I gotcha. Oh, weird, okay. It's not because of the pings and dings. It turns out the reason that we check our phones, the reason we tend to get distracted, 90% of the time is about what's going on inside of us. Not the external triggers, but the internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Let me say that again, uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety, uncertainty, these uncomfortable sensations that we will turn to something to try and escape. So when you're lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, before you scan your brain to see if you know the answer, just Google it. When you're bored, oh my goodness, tons of solutions for boredom. We can go to uh, check sports scores, stock prices, the news, right? All kinds of different things can help us satiate this uncomfortable emotional itch. And so once we understand that, once we understand that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, 
that distraction and procrastination, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply that we don't have the skills to deal with this kind of emotional discomfort in a healthy fashion that leads us to traction rather than distraction. So what that means, therefore, is that time management requires pain management. Let me say it again. Time management requires pain management. I don't care what book you read. I don't care what kind of gurus, tips and tricks you're using for your productivity, your life hacks. None of it will work. None of it. Even the stuff I tell you in my book, unless you start first and foremost with mastering those internal triggers, because look, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much food, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. Anything will distract you if you haven't first and foremost understood what is that uncomfortable internal trigger you are looking to escape with a distraction in the first place. Mm. I feel like you're blending all my worlds into one, like my men's consciousness work that I run mixed with psychology, all wrapped in a pretty bow. And that was one of them. One of the reasons I succeeded as an entrepreneur is because of pain, right? Like I allowed that insecurity to be my fuel and it worked to a point. And then eventually, as I started healing myself and becoming aware, the fuel source went away and I had to go through this phase of, as my business partner, Stefano says, if you want to deepen your service, deepen your practice. So when I text, I don't feel good. He's like sitting it longer, sitting it longer, explore it deeper. And then this is a lot of the work we do. And one of the big things for me, which I think is something that I picked up reading your book, I don't know, for the 17th time I read it uh, or listened to it to be an integrity. I'm uh, My ADD lets me listen to things as I work out is one of the biggest reasons that I got stuck in that cycle is because every time I would catch it and become aware of it, I would beat myself up. Doing yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. doing it again. And the cycle continued and you just said it. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not a character flaw. It's like a muscle. And, and I remember hearing or reading when you're like, you have to be your own best friend. And I think that's such an important distinction that I would love for you to unpack. Because like my experience, it took years for me to get there with lots of different <laughs> people listening to this know ayahuasca, plant medicine, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, silent retreats, and all of it. But I love how you simplify this. And you're like, you have to do pain management to be able to create a shift. And so can you talk about what you mean by being your own best friend and how this isn't a character flaw and what you can do to work through this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you bring up so many good points here, starting with this idea that this discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. I think that unfortunately, the self-help industry really gives people a, a, a warped understanding of this goal that they put in people's brains that we should somehow always be happy. Yep. That somehow, if you're not happy, if you're not contented, uh, if you're not hunky-dory, in nirvana land all the time, something's wrong with you. Nothing could be further from the truth. And if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes no sense for us to be happy all the time. Think about how every self-help book is about finding your happiness. Every self-help book says we're supposed to be happy all the time. That is rubbish. Yep. Think about it from an evolutionary perspective. If there was ever a group of homo sapiens, right? Our ancestors that were sitting around happy all the time and things were awesome and they were contented, Another group of homo sapiens would have killed and eaten them. <laughs> yeah. That would not be an evolutionarily beneficial trait. We need this perpetual disquietude, this discomfort to drive us forward. It's exactly what you said. That discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. An internal trigger, remember, an internal trigger, bisex, traction and distraction, it can lead you to either. Mm. So that the discomfort, like you said, of wanting to prove something, 
of having to achieve. This is what drives us forward. This is what helped us go to the moon. It's what helps us create amazing inventions, cure disease, overturn despots. We want that disquietude because that's what makes us and the world better. The problem is, is when it leads us not towards traction, which is healthy, which is what we intend to do, but when it leads us towards distraction. So the problem is when people take that same discomfort and say, push it down, don't feel it. There's something wrong with me. Let me take a pill to fix this. And instead, or they look at something else, right? They say, let me just watch some sports on TV. Let me go see what's happening in the news. Let me, there's a million ways that we can take our brain all out of our reality. Let me take a shot of something to get our brains out of this uncomfortable emotional state. And what I say is actually we can harness it like rocket fuel to move us forward, to move us towards traction rather than distraction. Yeah, it's so powerful and such a distinction because for me, the biggest difference was, and I would love your thoughts on this. Like when I look back at it now and look where I go today, like what fuels me, what drives me, it feels the same. It's just my level of awareness is very different. <laughs> it's almost like Scott Carney calls it the wedge, right? Like when I practice breath work and cold therapy, it's, oh, something's coming up. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Hold on, be with it and then respond versus react. And really, I think for years, I thought, I, I and, and the power of language, I used to convince myself like I was broken. Like I went, I did three combat tours. I've lost 28 Marines. Like I've witnessed more death than any which ever witnessed. There's something wrong with me that I can't process this or that I'm driven to that or this is coming up. And really it was when you said it earlier, it's there was just a tool that was missing from my toolbox. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like this understanding that it wasn't a character flaw. I, I wasn't born this way. The only two fears I had was falling in loud noises. So the rest of this was programmed in. And I quite frankly, haven't practiced going the other way. And it's something that's just really profound because like when I hear you speak about this, it's so validating. Alex Scharf and I were talking about this the other day. It's so validating because I'm like, oh, you get me. Like you get me. Mm. And it's not this complicated process. It's not this this is what caused it or where you were. Now you have to go spend another 30 years of your life programming something different. It's like these simple distinctions that you have broken down with really big words. By the way, I'm using a dictionary when I edit this podcast. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning in osmosis right now. Go ahead. There's something also really special, I think, about the type of person that you are in that you're the kind of person who seeks to take personal responsibility. That I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there that really would prefer to stay victims that it's such a convenient excuse to say, oh, it's the television, it's the computer, it's the social media, it's this, it's that, is doing it to me when it's not necessarily. Now, look, I, I'm not naive here. There are definitely people who are struggling with all sorts of things in their life. Totally. But when it comes specifically to the distractions that we tend to blame, come on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like this, this moral panic we have that, oh, we're all powerless. The technology is addicting us. It's hijacking our brain. It's ridiculous. Hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. It's not, oh my gosh, I like to play Candy Crush a whole lot. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And so what I want to do is to try and empower people and say, look, we can overcome this. We can absolutely do something about distraction. We can make sure not just the technological distraction, because people like to think it's that somehow distraction is new, that somehow it's the internet that invented distraction. I don't know. Plato was talking about distraction. The Greek philosopher was talking about distraction 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia in the Greek. This is nothing new. People have struggled with distraction forever. And the fact that they have means that there's something about the human condition 
that in fact makes it evolutionarily beneficial for us to get distracted. Why? Because it probably served us on the Serengeti, right? When our species first evolved, it was a good thing to constantly be on guard and to constantly be able to shift our attention. What as society matured, there's lots of things that we can do, that we can learn new skills that help make us better. That of course, our natural instinct might be towards distraction, but our natural instinct is to pee and poo wherever we want. Right? <laughs> but we grow up, we learn, we, we decide how to be better so that we can get the most out of, out of life, how to make society better, how to make the world better, and how to make ourselves better by learning these new skills. And I think becoming indistractable is really going to be the skill of the century because the world is bifurcating into two types of people who say, you know what, my life, my attention, my time can be manipulated by others, I don't care. And people who say, no, I will decide how I spend my time, how I spend my attention, how I spend my life because I am indistractable. Yeah, man, I had that when you said, when you said about Plato and then the Serengeti, I imagined if those people on the Serengeti were given ADD medication, what would have happened? And I was like, we wouldn't be mm -hmm. here. I was like, there's these things that come up. And the one that did it for me is I, I'll always forget. And, and this was before I even saw your keynote, but I was like, it's Facebook. And then somebody posted the image in like the 30s. And there were 100 people on the trolley and every one of them had a newspaper in front of their faces. And I was right, like, their, their right. screens were 36 inches, like at least mine's seven. Yeah. And we had these new expectations too. I remember my, my grandparents never gave my parents any attention. There was like no expectation. Like when my granddad came home from work, he smoked his, his pipe and read his newspaper and he wasn't expected to also be a dad. He wasn't expected to spend any time doing anything else. Like he basically stiff armed them and maybe at Friday night dinner, he would spend a little time with the kids, but there weren't these expectations and to think that, oh, all of a sudden people are getting distracted from the important things in life. I don't know. People have always been distracted by one thing or another. And in fact, much more dangerous ways. You know that people used to drink, believe it or not, way more in this country, way more people have a drink. People used to smoke way more than they do now. So there's, there will always be a distraction from one thing or another, unless we understand the root cause of what we're trying to fight against. Totally. And like that actually, like what, what comes up for me is like that distraction exists. And I realized that for so long and I, after doing so much personal development work and teaching, I try not to speak for people because I learned, I got smacked in the face with that one, but I used to be like, I, I just remember I did 12 years in the Marine Corps active duty. And so when I was medically separated, I got out and literally I was like, I hate the man, right? Everything was done to me. Everything was here. And there was this path of me that literally was like, if I blame them, I give justification to these feelings and I don't have to explore them. And, and really, when I look back at it, what was really underneath it was like this advocation of sovereignty, like this denial of yeah. me. Because somebody said this to me in an interview a couple months ago, and he's boredom's a gift. And I really had to lean into that. And, and when I look back at all the years and, and the quote unquote, like traditional therapy I did, alternative therapy I did, and this is actually in what you teach. And one of the gifts was, is that my biggest tool for everything, clarity, emotional well-being, like let's call it EQ, even IQ came from stillness and solitude. and before I started time blocking, I made sure that there was zero space for it because there was mm. always something to do, right? Like right. physical clutter, digital clutter, right? Oh my goodness. My desktop used to give me a panic attack. I'd be like, I have inbox zero. But if you looked at my desktop, you would have thought an atomic <laughs> bomb went off on the internet and it just collected sediment on my laptop. And one of the things 
that your book and and I like I'm still fanboying. Like I just want to say thank you publicly for doing the work <laughs> that you do. Yeah, it helps jarheads like me figure out how to do something with their life after. But when I really looked at it, what it was is it gave me the ability at multitudes of levels to actually just create space mm. to get into whatever the work would be or to give traction or clarity or something else along those lines. And it's probably the single biggest threat that I talk to thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs about every single time mm. is just this, that space, like the gift of this space and creating space without physical clutter, emotional clutter, digital clutter, right. as I like to call it, to explore those things. And yeah, I don't yeah. Oh man. Absolutely. Along that theme, first of all, thank you again for your service. Yeah, uh, awesome. I can't, can't thank you enough for, for that as a proud patriot. And I think it's important to differentiate, I think the different ways that people deal with these distractions in their yeah. life. So I, I like to call them the blamers or the shamers. So the blamers, they say it's something outside of me, right? It's Facebook, it's Netflix, it's the boss, it's my kids, it's all this stuff outside of me. And of course, there's nothing really you can do about that. You can't hop into some time machine and go back to a time before the internet and before the iPhone and before Facebook. These distractions are here. And frankly, as Plato demonstrated 2,500 years ago, there was never a time without distraction. Something will always distract you. So those are the blamers. They blame stuff outside themselves. And then the other extreme is what we call the shamer. The shamer doesn't blame things outside themselves. They shame themselves, right? This is what I used to do. They're, they're, I have a short attention span. There must be something wrong with me. I have an addictive personality. There I go again. I would keep shaming myself. And what I didn't realize is that shame is a very uncomfortable emotion. It's a strong internal trigger. And the more we feel this uncomfortable emotional state, the more likely we become, guess what? To seek distraction to escape that uncomfortable internal trigger. So we don't want to be blamers. We don't want to be shamers. What's the alternative? The third path is to be what we call a claimer, not a blamer, not a shamer, but a claimer claims responsibility, not for how they feel. This is a really important point. Many people don't realize this. You do not control your feelings. I said again, you do not control your feelings. You do not control your urges. Think about the urge to sneeze, right? If you have the urge to sneeze, you already have it. You can't control the urge to sneeze. All you can control is how you respond, hence the term responsibility, how you respond to that urge, how you respond to that feeling. So when you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No, you pick out a handkerchief because that's the responsible thing to do and you cover your face, right? The same goes with our emotions. You're not responsible for feeling that urge to check social media, for feeling the urge to eat that chocolate cake, for feeling the urge to smoke the cigarette, whatever the case might be. You are not responsible for that. The only thing you are responsible for is how you will respond to that urge, how you will respond to that feeling. And the good news is that we can train ourselves. We can learn to have this quiver of arrows with us at all times that we can use to take out and say, okay, I feel this internal trigger. I'm feeling boredom. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling uncertain. I'm feeling lonely. What am I going to do with that discomfort? Am I going to look for escape? Am I going to look to take my mind off of it with more booze, more news, more whatever? Or am I going to learn to deal with it in a healthy way that leads me towards traction rather than distraction? So we can absolutely learn these techniques. It's just a matter of practice like everything else. As a listener of the podcast, I know you're wanting to scale your business to the six, seven, and even eight figures and dominate your industry. 
That's why I've personally invited some of the best in the game right now when it comes to social media domination, scaling your brand, and mastering your habits on top of mastering customer journey to join us in the three-day immersive experience in Montana on October 14th through 16th of 2022. In those three days, you will walk away with the exact systems I use to scale multi-million dollar brands, a game plan to transform your business, and a vision to scale with clarity. We'll be going deeper, sharing our light even brighter, and crafting your plan to rocket launch into 2023. So will you join us so you can grab your tickets over at our brand new website, which I love because it's pink, mindofgeorge.com slash event, or just shoot me a DM on Instagram with the word event, and we will send you all of the details. And now back to the regularly scheduled podcast. I'm feeling boredom. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling uncertain. I'm feeling lonely. What am I going to do with that discomfort? Am I going to look for escape? Am I going to look to take my mind off of it with? Yeah. Oh, I love that. So I'm going to just pull that thread right there. So like, how does somebody go about practicing that? Like when we have that urge, like how do you hack that back to use your language? Absolutely. Yes. This, I read a lot of books (laughs) and one of the things that really frustrates me with, with self-help books out there is that most of them tend to be, Hey, this works for me. So it's going to work for you. Is there any science behind this? Not really, but it works for me (laughs) and it makes for a good book cover. And so I didn't want to write that kind of book. So everything in my book is cited by peer reviewed studies. There's over 30 pages of citations from peer reviewed journals. So not only does it work, because again, I wrote the book for me more than anyone, but also it's backed by some really good research and you can see all that citations in the back of the book. So I give dozens of different techniques for dealing not only with, with the first step of mastering the internal triggers, but also the three other big steps to becoming indistractable. But let me just give you some techniques right now that everyone listening can use immediately. So the first thing we want to do is to note the sensation. So psychologists tell us that if we can simply write down what it is we're feeling that precedes the distraction. Okay, you sit down at your desk and, oh my gosh, you know what? I'm checking Facebook or the news or email as opposed to working on that big project. What was I feeling right before I did that? If you can simply write that down, if you can catch yourself and write it down with a pen and paper somewhere, That is a huge first step because now you're beginning to identify that internal trigger. The next thing we want to do is to get curious rather than contemptuous, right? Don't get contemptuous. Don't beat yourself up. Oh, there's something wrong with me. I need, I need a diagnosis. I do this all the time. Don't beat yourself up. Get curious rather than contemptuous. And then finally, what we want to do is to surf the urge. Now, by the way, all this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. This isn't some pet theory that I came up with. This has been around for a decade. Surfing the urge acknowledges that our internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotions, they crest and then they subside, just like a wave. A wave comes and then goes. But we, th- we don't think about emotions that way. We think about emotions as, oh, when I'm angry, I'm always angry. When I'm bored, I'm always gonna be bored. When I'm uh, uncertain, it always, it, I'm always gonna feel like that. And of course, that's never the case. And so what we can do is to ride that sensation like a surfer on a surfboard, to surf the urge. And so here's a technique that I use almost every single day. I write every day. And writing is really hard work, right? Like I've written two bestsellers, countless articles. I always want to get distracted. I always, every time I sit down to write, feel this urge to Google something or just check the news for a minute or let me just check email. I want to do everything but writing because writing is really hard work. So here's a technique that anyone can use. It's called the 10 minute rule. The 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, but not right now, in 10 minutes. So whether it's, 
I really want to check email. Not right now in 10 minutes. I really want a piece of that chocolate cake, even though I'm trying to cut back on sugar. Nope. Not right now in 10 minutes. I really want to smoke that cigarette. Okay, fine. But not right now in 10 minutes. Why is this so important? Why is this so powerful? Because we know that abstinence can backfire. That strict abstinence, telling yourself no, rather than what I propose, which is not yet, is like pulling on a rubber band. If you pull on a rubber band, you pull eventually, if you keep pulling far enough, eventually you can't pull anymore. And when you let go of that rubber band, it doesn't just go back to where it started. No, it's going to ricochet across the room. And so that's what abstinence does to us. We know, for example, with cigarettes, that the addiction to cigarettes, the vast majority of people, it's going to blow your mind. The vast majority of people are actually not technically addicted to even cigarettes, which we know how addictive nicotine is. Some people are very much addictive, uh, addicted to cigarettes. But even though cigarettes are addictive, the vast majority of people who smoke are not actually addicted to the nicotine. What they're addicted to is this habitual behavior of telling themselves, no, I'm not going to smoke. 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 Okay, fine. I'll give in. And when they give in, it's that relief of telling themselves not to do something that the brain experiences as pleasure. It's almost if you really have to pee, if you're on a long road trip and you really have to pee and then you finally make it to the rest stop and uh, that relief feels good. And so what you're doing is if you constantly tell yourself, no, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. And then you finally give in to it. That is the pattern you're reinforcing. You're essentially teaching your brain that to escape the discomfort of telling yourself no, the answer is yes. So we don't want strict abstinence. What we want is to tell ourselves not necessarily no, but not yet. Because when it comes to technology in particular, we can't just stop using technology. We can just stop checking email. We can't stop using these tools. They're many For many of us, they're absolutely imperative for our livelihood. So that's why I don't agree with these professors in ivory towers without social media accounts. So oh, just stop using technology. I'll get fired if I do that. So that's not a realistic solution. So the idea here is to not tell ourselves no, but to tell ourselves not yet. And so many times I'll just take out my phone. I'll, I'll tell the phone, set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put my phone down. And my job is to take one of two paths. So instead of giving into that distraction, what I want to do instead is to say, okay, I can either get back to the task at hand. Let's say it's writing or whatever it is I said I was going to do with my time. Let me get back to that. Or I just need to sit with that sensation. I need to surf the urge. I need to explore it with curiosity rather than contempt. And what you will find, it's amazing, that those 10 minutes, first of all, they pass by so slowly. It's amazing. When you actually hit the time, it passes by very slowly. And what you will find that nine times out of 10, when the alarm goes off, okay, when the 10 minutes are up, you will have already been back to the thing that you said you were going to do. Yeah. That distraction just crested and then went away. So the 10 minute rule is a wonderful technique that anybody can adopt right now. It's just one of dozens of other techniques that we can use to help us master those internal triggers. Yeah, I, I'm just gonna let that pause and marinate for a dramatic pause for a second. Like that, and I say that because I don't know if a lot of people realize, like I realize this, but there's so many levels of consciousness in your writing and in your work because you come at it from the studies perspective, there's actual physical data, then the personal experience perspective, and then you get into the subconscious from the psychology perspective. And I'm like, you're talking about practices and like it took me 20 years to get to with my men's work teachers. And it's just roped into the practice and I love it. And like that 10, that 10 minute rule, I, I feel like a, a walking tweetable or metaphor at this time, like the same thing with like the Buffalo. Like I got so addicted to the resistance of mm. that thing that 
that became the dopamine hit. Look, and I wore like a badge of honor. Look, I didn't do it again. And I was bulimic for 15 years, even as an active duty Marine. And so when I didn't want to talk about it openly, because nobody knew until I became a food blogger, but just in case you guys didn't know, I became a paleo food blogger to beat bulimia in public. But you all know that story if you're listening to this. I lived in this story for so long of, look, I can beat it. I'm beating it. I'm beating it. I'm beating it. And eventually, no matter how big the gap got, there was this missing acceptance and it would spiral back, but 10 times worse and 20 times worse. And what's funny is I, I think you might appreciate this. The way that I beat my eating disorder is I publicly went on one of the largest health podcasts in the world and told everybody for the first time. And that release of shame, literally, I never had an urge again. Like literally 15 years of sexual abuse and trauma and bulimia that led into it. One public conversation of, and, and really underneath it, like self-acceptance and releasing the guilt and the shame. And to this, everyone's like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I talked about it when I had done other work leading up to it. But that 10 minute rule, I think the most important part for me was it was acknowledging like when you say riding the wave, it's literally giving the space and honoring the emotion, like being a witness to it versus I'm going to like totally sit in it and be addicted to that story. I'm going to totally resist it and be addicted to that one. But it's almost like just creating that space to honor that. That's really powerful, man. That's really powerful. Yeah. I, and and congratulations on, on your journey. I think that by releasing yourself, I, Brene Brown says that guilt is about I did something that I don't like. Shame is about, I don't like myself. Shame is about, I am bad versus what I did is bad. And I think that when it comes to, I think the increasing moralization and victimization that we have around, oh, something, th this thing on online is bad, that's good. What I do with my spare time is fine, but what you do is wrong. And all this moralizing, I don't know if it really serves us because I think as long as it's done, whatever you do with your time, whatever pastime you, you decide to spend your time on, that's fine as long, again, as it's done with intent. So releasing ourselves from this guilt that I am somehow a bad person, I think that's a big part of, I think what might've helped you is releasing that shame and just focusing on, okay, how can I get better? How can I improve this behavior without this needless shame? And that's why we know that, that people who are more self-compassionate are much more likely to reach their long-term goals. Mm -hmm. That it's the people who talk to themselves the way they would talk to a good friend. And this is something that I think, you know, I, I really struggled with in the past, that I would be the worst bully to myself. Could you do that to your daughter? You're sitting here with your daughter and now you're checking your phone. My God, you're such a bad dad. You're such a horrible person. And to have that kind of dialogue in my, the back of my head really wasn't serving me. Whereas what we find is that people who are self-compassion, the way we cultivate self-compassion, by the way, is, is pretty easy. What we need to remember is that whenever we talk to ourselves, remember to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. So if you called me and said, hey, I'm struggling with this, or if I called you and said, hey, I was with my daughter the other day and I feel really bad about this. We were playing and I couldn't stop checking my phone. Would you tell me I'm, oh my God, you're the worst? No, you would say, okay, let's talk about this. Let's deal with it. And, and w without the, the shame and the guilt that I think a lot of people inflict upon themselves. Yeah. I have a quote unquote hack for this that I learned. I think this was the first time I, I met with a shaman, but they told me before I, I did some of this work to bring a picture of me when I was like somewhere between three and five years old. Mm. And after doing a session of breath work and, and explaining like what was coming up for me in the story, I, you and I are very similar. Like I like you thought bullies were mean to me. Just waited till you heard what I said about myself. And 
Right. And I actually find myself divulging a lot to that I normally don't talk about. Everybody on my podcast knows my story, but I'm like, ah, like this did a lot for me. And it got to this point and they said, what we want you to do is we want you to take out that picture every time you start talking negative to yourself. And so what I did five years ago is the background of my phone is me when I was four years old. Nice. By the way, you can't see this. I have no front teeth. I look like Dracula because my dentures fell out at four years old with a bowl cut, like rocking it. (laughs) But I would say that going back and looking at like the roller coaster of my even entrepreneurial journey, that what you say is so true that it's this acceptance, like being really compassionate to myself. And I open that picture all the time like all the time, every time I open my phone, it's the background. And so when I go to my quote unquote distractions sometimes and to collect evidence that I might be right, I'm met with that like cute little adorable face that looks just like the age of my son. And it's probably been one of the most profound things I've done. That's awesome. That's awesome. I I love, by the way, I have to comment on, I'm not sure if everyone can see this, but your phone, you have hacked back the external triggers, which is the third step. We talked about step number one is mastering the internal triggers. Yep. Step number two is about making time for traction, turning your values into time. Yeah. You really got the third step down where your phone is so clean, right? You've just got what, like maybe what, four apps on your own screen? That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, man, I'm, t- I'm, I'm telling you, like I, I started realizing like in, and, and avid truth, I'm a marketer for a living. This is what I do. And I tell people to be intentional. One of my daily practices for all my students is every day as a part of their daily practice, they have to spend the morning. I I use a lighthouse analogy. So I tell them they have to turn the light on. So in morning, it's 10 minutes of solitude, stillness and boredom, just with a thought or prompt. But like you said earlier, to be the watcher, not the writer, right? Watching the feelings that come or the thoughts that come, but not writing them down, just being in it. And then when they start their day, they have to make a commitment in the morning that they're either going to consume or they're going to create and and they have to time block it. And, and so it's, if I'm going to consume, like I'm going to read nearandfar.com to learn this one thing. And the moment they learn it, they got to implement it and they're done for the day, or I'm going to create it. And what was really interesting is that in my physical life, I found myself, I kept cleaning my office or cleaning my desk or decluttering because I was like, oh, I need more space and less distraction. And I would avoid doing it digitally because I knew that the moment I did it digitally and I had an empty screen or nothing on my homepage, when that default behavior popped up, I was going to be met with that like self-awareness of, oh, what is this? What was the feeling that caused this? And it was a process of like really hacking back and an email was easy for me, right? Rules, filters, and the superhuman app, which I'm pretty sure you're aware of, the best oh, yeah. email platform in the world. Oh, Love good it. job, by the way. I probably sent you 8,000 clients at this point. Um, <laughs> and then I, I had to really start doing it. And then one of the things that I did is I, I ran this blog. I was a food blogger called Civilized Caveman. I wrote a book called The Paleo Kitchen, blah, blah, blah. And I had all these followers. But when I would go and travel and I wouldn't have internet, I literally experienced withdrawals deeper than any opiate that I'd ever taken in my life. And Mm -hmm. so I made a decision that entire business with a distraction from my values, which was being a husband and a father that I hadn't learned how to do. So I came Mm -hmm. back and shocked everybody and I walked away overnight and I gave it away as a Christmas present. And so I walked away from the company, which means I deleted social media. I deleted about a million Mm -hmm. followers and just disappeared, changed my email, changed my phone number. And I replaced the app and all of them. And Instagram was the big one. And I replaced it with a notes document. And every time I opened, it, I had to write about it. And I would just write the date. It took me nine months to just bring consciousness to the fact that I was still doing that. Nine months wow. 
for me to not naturally, when I unlocked my phone, go right to where that app was. Mm. And it was just practice. But like I say, because it wasn't Instagram's fault, it was mine. Like it was my choice and like this addiction that I had. But like when I say that what you do is makes a difference, like it really, I'm getting emotional, really makes a difference. And I love that you did it from a place of this is my life. This is my journey. This is what's going to help me based on values. And for everybody listening to this, I'd listen to this 25 times because there's roped in, I feel like there's shoals, like underneath, there's rip currents in here that you can't yet feel yet, like where the limits of this spread out in everything that you do. And yeah, man, I, I actually just can't say thank you. And I have more questions that I just can't say thank you enough. I'm Oh, my pleasure. I'm curious. Tell me more about how you've integrated. like since have you started using that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, it's a great question. So now I'm more omnipresent than ever. And it's done in less than 30 minutes a day. And what ends up happening is we're back on Instagram. We have the podcast. We have my Facebook group and my personal Facebook and YouTube. Those are my social channels. Right. And so. Now we systematize everything. And so we know what our social media stories are going to be for 30 days. And so I don't even have the logins for the apps anymore. And so every morning I get a text message on Slack from my team. It says, hey, we need this IG story video for 60 seconds, this one for two minutes, this one for three minutes. And then I drop them in a drive folder and I'm done. And then somehow magically I see ads of my own face. And then what they'll do is they'll be like, hey, these are the comments that we got. How would you respond? And I'll rapid fire voice responses and they'll go type them in. And so I've just learned that like in what comes up for me now is we use the platforms. Even if I open Instagram, I open it because I do have the login. I'll open it to respond to a DM or to go comment on my wife's stuff. But there's this really interesting switch that flicks the moment it goes from intentional to distracted. Mm. And I can literally feel it in my gut. And I start to feel like nauseous and I feel uneasy. I start to have those feelings of I'm not good enough. And it's so instantaneous. It's I've trained my body to know the moment it's no longer intentional. And so do you, do you time box the time on Instagram? I do. I do. Yeah, that's, that's huge. That's really important because this is very important. Most people, when they check Instagram throughout their day or any social media platform for that matter, it's solely based on the internal triggers. It's solely based on I'm bored. I don't know what else to do. I'm feeling lonely. Uh, I don't really want to do my work. I don't feel like being productive right now. So let me have a quick escape. Yeah. It's not actually the dopamine hit. People talk about dopamine like it's cocaine. It's not cocaine. <laughs> it's about escaping discomfort, right? Anybody who's ever felt an addiction before, they know an addiction is not about feeling good. An addiction is about escaping feeling bad. Yes. And so that's what we're doing here. Where it's, you know, all human behavior is about the desire to escape discomfort. It's not about pleasure seeking. It's about relieving that discomfort. So once we realize, wait a minute, this is just a, a, a craving. This is just an urge. I don't have to be a slave to that urge. I can use it as opposed to letting it use me. And by scheduling that time as you've done to say, look, I'm going to have 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. But that time is apportioned for that task. And then if that's it, and then the next day you can look back and say, okay, how can I make an adjustment? Was it enough time? Was it too much, too little? And then you can make adjustments for that as well as all the other values you have in your life uh, to make sure that you have the time you need. Totally. What's really interesting, one of the big profound things that happened when I started time blocking and learned this from you, man, I was really giving myself too much credit for how much I got done because the moment I started time blocking, I got 35 times the amount of stuff done. And (laughs) I would find like my team looks at my calendar and they're like, Hey man, you got to crush the day. We don't need you to fit anything else. And, and they're so good 
they'll literally be like the moment you're done, it's family time. Like they won't talk to yeah. you after the rest of the day. It could be 9am for all they care. And That's I remember awesome. looking at it one day and I had, I was recording three of these podcasts. I was, I go on a lot of podcast interviews every week. And then I was writing a day, my daily email and I like had it blocked until 1130. And I had a gap in there at 915 and my team reached out. They're like, Hey man, you're blocked till 1130. Is there anything? Uh, can you squeeze this in when you're done? And I was like, Oh, I've been on YouTube for the last 15 minutes. What are you doing on YouTube? I'm like, oh, I finished everything already. And they're like, you did what? And it was this, the momentum was insane. Like yeah. insane. But I felt like I was like so in flow. And what really is that contained even right. my whole world. So I didn't have to think. I didn't even allow a backdoor out. And it literally was like, I knew what was in my calendar. So the moment one finished, it was like, end record. And it was like, go. And the momentum is, I equate it, I'm not a big runner, but I used to have to run all the time. And I never, I never really enjoyed running, but I enjoyed the ability and the skill I had after. And I was enjoyed it when I was done. But I always remember, and the same with cold therapy, the first minute or the first mile always was like, oh, and then every time I would go again, I'm like, oh, that first mile, that first minute. But there's that beautiful spot when you hit the tilt or the tipping point, right. And then you're yeah. like, rocket ship. And yeah. that's yeah. what time blocking does for me. It's true because of that constraint that a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to time box my day. I'm just going to use my to-do list. And I, I, I rail against to-do lists. Yeah. I hate to-do lists. People don't realize how terrible to-do lists are for their productivity. And, and I'm not saying like it's bad to write things down. It's absolutely great to get things out of your head and put them down. It's where you put them into. Mm -hmm. Most people, because a to-do list has no constraints, they just add more and more crap to their to-do list. And day after day, they don't finish what they say they're going to do. And I, I think the primary reason why this is so dangerous is that if you're the kind of person like I used to be that goes through their days not finishing what they say they're going to do, this begins to affect your self-image. Yep. So what happens if I have a big, long to-do list and at the end of the day, I still haven't finished everything on my list and I do this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, I'm reinforcing a self-image of someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. Loser. And so we begin to, we begin to, uh, to, to believe that we are incapable. Then you hear people say, oh, I must have a short attention span. Oh, I must be bad at time management. No, it's just that you've reinforced the self-image that you are then. And of course, if you believe you are, well, then the war is over. You lost <laughs> because you will act in accordance to those beliefs, which is why we need to stop measuring ourselves based on output and rather measure ourselves based on input. Yeah. That the kind of people who actually get way more done than the to-do list methodology is the people who measure themselves not by how many little boxes did I tick off because we know what people tend to do is the easy stuff. That's why, because they love that feeling of ticking off boxes. They never get to the actually important stuff. They just took off the easy stuff, but more so the people who plan the input. So what's our, and think about this like a baker, okay? If you were to go to a baker and say, hey, I need you to bake me a hundred loaves of bread, okay? Like paleo bread, because yeah. that's much. <laughs> so, so you would say, okay, what's the input? If you need the output, what's the input? It's flour, it's yeast, it's salt. It's all these ingredients that I need to make the output. But when it comes to the kind of work that we tend to do, when it comes to knowledge work, our input isn't flour and yeast and salt. Our input is only two things. We only have two ingredients, time and attention. That's it. But how many of us plan for the input? We weren't all the output, right? I want to have written a book. I want to have a great body because I exercise. I want to have a great relationship with our family. So we want the output, but we don't plan the input. Then should we be surprised when we don't get it? And putting it on a to-do list isn't going to cut it. 
So you have to plan the input. You have to have that time on your calendar in advance or you're not going to get that output. Yeah, I'll tell you a dirty, I'll tell you a dirty little secret nobody's heard before since you're speaking SIPOC. One of my dirty little secrets is that I was uh, a black belt at Lean Six Sigma and I never talk about it whatsoever because I'm such a visionary dude and I love to live up to the 80% mark that I like keep my processes hidden. But when you're talking about inputs and outputs and I'm like, ah, this is something I avoided for so long and, and, and I don't know about anybody else listening to this, but I, I had this realization on a meditation the other day. I look back at, you know, my life and, and everything. And I was the guy that chased these addictions and I was the best at this scuba diving, dive master, skydiving, 500 jumps, golfing, like three handicap. I mean, everything snowboarding and I collect all the equipment by the best, but then I get bored and I move on because that gap, like I would always get to 80% and that gap, that 20% equaled mastery. And it wasn't mm -hmm. mastery of sport. It was mastery of practice and the mastery of right. practice meant self-acceptance. And that I would have to get there. And when I, I think about this, like outcome based stuff, which focus on inputs to create out, outcomes was one of the most profound things. My buddy, Jonathan Baylor, who was on teams at Microsoft, they only use outcome based process management. And there's all these different things that like really went into it. And what you're saying is like the to-do list, like I have a, I have one pad of sticky notes next to me. And at the end of the day, I have to take the sticky notes and it can't be left here. It goes in Rome research and it gets filed away somewhere. But like, I used to look at my desk and I had lists for lists <laughs> and lists for lists. And there were times where I would even hoard the notepad. I would literally Maybe. hoard the notepad. And the worst part was, is I had this process bias or this process prejudice because I used to teach it. And I go into companies and I'm like, here's your SIPOC. This is how you do your RACI model. Boom. But then in my desk, I would literally have college line ruled like six <laughs> pages of to-do lists. And yeah, I yeah. ever did it. There's no constraint. Right? There, there, there's no constraint for to do this. The beauty of using this methodology to become indistractable is that it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can be Bill Gates. You can be Jeff Bezos. It doesn't matter how much money you have. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. That becomes a constraint. So it's forcing you to make trade-offs. Mm -hmm. The hardest part of being an entrepreneur is prioritization. Yeah. That's actually your only job as a CEO. When I look at companies to make angel investments, I've invested about 25 companies today. Three of them are unicorns. And what I look for in an entrepreneur is always the ability to prioritize. That is your only job. I think it's our only job in life yeah. <laughs> is to decide what matters and what doesn't because you'll never be able to do everything. We just need to get okay with that. Right? Yes. We, we have to have constraints. If you ask an artist, what's the hardest part about painting? It's that blank canvas, yeah. right? Uh, when you ask an author, what's the hardest part about writing? It's that blank page. It's when you don't have constraints. When you have constraints, it actually makes you better, which is why using a time boxing technique is so effective. It forces you to make these trade-offs. Yeah, man. I, oh, I have so many questions, but I got to make some fun ones because I haven't closed this loop yet earlier. I was going to say there's one. There's one place where I remain a victim and it's when the chocolate chip pancakes hit my plate. I let myself be a victim for a couple minutes for that one. Hey, as long as with intent, right? If it is. Hey, Saturday morning, that's my chocolate chip pancake day. Well, you, you know what? It. No you know, what's funny is I, I joked about this earlier, but I take eating disorders very seriously because it's something I did for 15 years. But the biggest thing that really came out of that, this completely ties into what you're saying is after I came out public, I started like speaking around the world about it. I remember this one quote and I said, you're not in a monogamous relationship with food. There is no cheating, only choices. Yeah. And it was this 
big distinction that it was just a choice. And then I could yeah. choose again. And someone's, and it was one of my friends are like, yeah, you eat three times a day. You can stack choice in your favor. Eat two more better meals today. I was like, it was such this profound concept. Yeah. yeah. Of like, you know, it's interesting though, with food and distraction have so much in common. You know, I used to be clinically obese oh. uh, at one point in my life. And so I've, I definitely understand the struggle around. Me too. And there's, and my first instinct was of course, to blame the, the food. It's McDonald's fault. It's uh, the fast food companies, right? It's like they're making me fat. It's Coca-Cola's fault. And eventually I grew out of that because if I'm honest with myself, I didn't overeat because of them. I didn't overeat even because I was hungry. I was overeating because of my feelings. Right? Wow. Yeah. Overeating because I was lonely. I was overeating because I was bored. I was overeating because I felt ashamed at how much I, have o- I had overeaten. Mm-hmm. And that was really the source of the discomfort. Uh, that I was looking to escape through food. And I think a lot of people struggle with eating disorders. That's really what it's about. It's not even about, and the way this actually is when you give yourself a constraint like that and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to have chocolate chip pancakes. I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm going to have chocolate chip pancakes, but only on Saturday. <laughs> they're, they're never that good. I don't yep. know if you've noticed. Have you noticed this? Yes, I have. Because it's okay. I was saving all this. Oh my God, chocolate chip pancakes. They're going to be so amazing. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to let myself have them now. I'm going to have them a little later. It's, it was proves it's never about the thing, right? It's about what's inside it's about how we relate to this stuff. It's about the feeling of control and agency that we're looking for. Yeah, no, that I, I learned when I started doing that, like with my family, like we just love to go to brunch and I was like, we always go to this one place. The moment it went from, Hey, it's Saturday morning. I have a craving. Let's go to breakfast to we're doing brunch on Saturday at this place. I also found myself eating like one third of what I would have normally eaten, like in reaction, because I was like, oh, this is good. But I was suddenly satiated because I was intentional and aware. Yeah. The temperance of it and all of it is just amazing. And now I have to ask though. So I was, by the way, I was, who's 257 pounds at my heaviest. So I've been there as well, but I got to know now, cause I'm aware of mine. Mine's chocolate chip pancakes. What's your all go to like favorite food? Croissants oh. without a doubt. Chocolate like, ones or regular ones? No, just regular just really well made. Now there's a lot of variety. Yeah. Uh, there, there's high beta, as we say, right? There's a lot of volatility when it comes to croissants. You can go like the, the Costco route and there are these like mushy, disgusting things. But there's a place in New York, when we get back to traveling, if you get a chance to go to Manhattan, there's a place called Bread's Bakery that has the best croissants in the world. <laughs> it's just plain old really well-made flaky croissants. That's my indulgence. And you know, oh, you nailed it. Cause like I grew up working at Dunkin' Donuts as a kid, right? Cause I grew up in Massachusetts. So that was like the job. And I loved them cause they were always doughy and squishy, but they missed the flake. And then I've gone to other yeah. places where I was like, Hey, that was in the oven a bit too long. I need that medium. I need that balance. Yeah. And so yours is chocolate chip pancakes? Is mine's, mine's chocolate chip pancakes and a close second would be chocolate croissants, but from a really good, cause I feel like the Americanized chocolate croissants is I'm going to give you a little bit of flaky crust with your chocolate bar in the middle. That's the, right. There has to be this harmony between the two of them. And that was actually the food. <laughs> the day that I realized I wasn't celiac anymore, and this is for a whole different podcast, so we'll save it. But the day I realized I wasn't celiac anymore, the first thing I went to was a chocolate croissant because I was already stacking down chocolate chip pancakes. Nice. And literally in my book, The Paleo Kitchen, page 95, that recipe only was created and perfected because I missed pancakes. 
And so I made these fluffy blueberry pancakes and my publisher was like, these are the best like gluten-free grain. I'm like, I know it took me like three (laughs) years to figure out had like the right flowers and mixture, but yeah, that's what it was. It was uh, chocolate oh, chip pancakes. Maybe this weekend. That sounds awesome. Now I'm intrigued. Oh, so I will send you the recipe. I'll send you the recipe. Now you, and, and here's another, I'm like dirty little secrets here, but we're going to wrap in a minute. But I didn't start reading until three years ago. I'd never read a book in my life. And so outside of Hot Zone, that's the only book I remember when I was a kid. Hot Zone was the one I had to read in science class, but I swore like I didn't need it. And it actually helped me become successful in the beginning because the only thing I could focus on is when I understood when I put this input in, this was the result that I got and this one didn't create a result. So in the beginning, it made me a very successful blogger and marketer. And then I went over consumption and I read and I read and I read and I, I got to this distinction where I figured out most of the time I was reading or consuming was I was seeking a permission slip to do what I already knew was right, but I wanted mm-hmm. to advocate the responsibility. And so for everybody listening, I haven't talked about my triad, but I think if they were to give a master's or a PhD in business and marketing, it's you, Jonah Berger and Mike Michalowicz. Oh, wow. That's great company. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And that's the tripod and all of them. And I highly recommend that. But what I have to know is what is your go-to? Like if you could recommend like three authors or three books to entrepreneurs, I've never asked anybody this question, but I would love your input. What would you recommend? This is a tough one because there are so many good books out there and then it's hard for me to constraints. Constraints. Yeah. And I also have a lot of author friends, so this might actually get me into trouble, but there's, I'll tell you some books that I've read that I've really enjoyed recently. So I read, uh, Factfulness, yep. uh, really stuck with me by uh, Hans Ronsling. I think that's a great book, not necessarily a business book, but I think it's a, it's a, it's unplugged from the matrix type mm-hmm. book. Like I didn't really like books that help me see the world differently. I don't need the same stuff. I like a lot of people read books to hear what they already know. And I love that feeling of, oh, I totally knew this. And look, this person wrote a book about it. So I'm as, I'm just as smart as this book, but I really like the books that surprise me. And factfulness is really, it's fantastic because even, even professors and these very learned people supposedly do no, did no better on an assessment of world facts that Hans Ronsling provided, they did worse than monkeys that took the experiment. It's essentially randomness, right? Like they did worse than random at understanding the state of the world. And so I think if you're looking like, especially in these times when everybody think, oh my God, the world is getting so terrible. Nothing's ever been as bad. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Pick up this book. You're going to see the world much more accurately. And I think you'll be much more optimistic as to where we are as a civilization. So I'd highly recommend that. Let's see, what other books have been really big influences? Influenced by Cialdini. No, just <laughs> I love that it. book. Yep. Oh, oh, that, that's a great book. Drive by Daniel Pink was fantastic because it led me to the work of Desi and Ryan, who were the researchers around self-determination theory, which is a big part of my work. It features prominently in the section on how to raise indistractable kids in my book. That's a great book. And then there's, I could go on and on. Oh, Mindset by Carol Dweck is a wonderful book as well. Uh, her work is really fantastic, but yeah. no and, then, and then I'll give you one more book for a, a work yeah. of fiction. I wouldn't read the book, but if you could find the play, so if you can find the, the I can't remember what, what do you call it. So the text of the play for Moby Dick, like Moby Dick, the, the original book is way too long. Like it's a slog. But if you can find the text of the play or even better see the play, it's so... Good. I saw it in Chicago like two years ago and 
It's so, and let me just say real quick why it's so interesting. So Moby Dick is probably like the quintessential American novel, right? And what's so interesting about it is that it's like, you could basically substitute this whale that, that Captain Ahab is hunting for pretty much any distraction. <laughs> and it fits perfectly into any context. Like you could remake this movie and make the distraction hunting for that big deal, going for that IPO, closing the sale, getting a million Instagram followers, right? Like you, it's the same psychology, like his madness going to kill this whale and the, the harm he causes. It's just so in line with the, the deeper psychology around uh, why we get distracted that, that I was just so impressed that this book was old and yet so relevant still today. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. I, I don't ever give book recommendations, but I like the how the world works. I've taken the red pill a few times, in my opinion, and I've been really deep into Sean Carroll's stuff lately in like quantum physics and quantum mechanics. And he makes me feel way more intelligent than I give myself credit for because he breaks it down in a way that I can actually understand. But he's got a book called The Big Picture. And I started by binging him three on all three of his Joe Rogan episodes and they're long ones. And I was like, you're the first person that has made all of this stuff that I thought was like esoteric and out of my realm make sense. And so it's been really interesting. Yeah, it's called The Big Picture by Sean Carroll for anybody listening. Yeah, yeah and so it's a really good one. Just so everybody knows, I forgot to do this in the beginning, but his email, his website, I email you guys about it. But the best place to find it, and I highly recommend Hooked, Indistractable, but the website is near and far. And I'm going to say this. There are only three emails that I read every single day. One is a medium digest of things on productivity, psychology, and marketing. One is the morning brew. And then one is your newsletter when it comes. And I especially love your roundups, by the way. Thanks. Man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Even though it takes me a bit of time to get through them because I feel like there's so much and they're really good. <laughs> you don't um, have to read them all. <laughs> no, I know. I Constraints. I'm learning constraints here. I there you go. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just trying to get to myself constrained to where I can prioritize better. And I'm like, I got this. So with that, everybody listening, go to nearandfar.com, N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com. And then near I-L redirects as well. But I always ask everybody, if you could wrap for everybody listening, if you could leave them, let's use some NLP here or persuasion or influence by Cialdini. If you could leave them with one thing, one takeaway, a closing thought, like what would be the last imprint that you would give them before we wrap? Yeah. So if you were to summarize my work over the past five years, it is uh, this mantra that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That when we get distracted, when we go off track and we've already established that this is the real problem today, it's not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. This is fundamentally an impulse control issue. So what's the antidote to impulsiveness? It's forethought. Because there is a gift that we as human beings have that no other animal on the face of the earth has, which is the ability to see the future with higher fidelity. We can predict what is going to happen better than any other animal on the face of the earth. And so what that means is that there is no distraction. There is nothing that we can't overcome if we plan ahead. So if you wait until the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going you're gonna to eat it. If you wait till the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, it's going to be the first thing you pick up in the morning before you even say hello to your loved one. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If we plan ahead, we can make sure that we take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. Wow. I'm not going to dilute that anymore. I'm going to leave that as the mic drop 
for those of you listening, this episode needs to break the internet. I, I'm I'm not going to taint that beautiful message that he left. And so I'm just going to thank you from the bottom of my heart of being here. Uh, it's been an absolute honor. I'd love to have you back for round two and three down the road. Yeah, I'm sure you got more books coming out. I'm sure you probably written two of them already with your constraints, right? <laughs> Is there something we don't know about yet? Still working on, but thank you. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. No, of course. We'll have to do it again. For everybody listening, go make sure you check out his website, get the books. I'm telling you right now, you're welcome. PhD in business marketing and entrepreneurship, especially indistractable with what we talked about today. As always, I love you. This has been another Free For All Friday. Remember that relationships will always beat algorithms. And until next time, I will not see you. You will hear me in another episode. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Mind of George Show. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite channel that you listen to, whether it's in the car, on your run, or in front of the television. Make sure you leave a review to help other people know how much you love the show and quite frankly, help me know how much you love the show because I read them all. And if you want five-minute daily insider nuggets on business, marketing, leadership, mindset, or any other tool that you would need to build and scale your company, make sure you register for my invite-only newsletter. I call it the Lightkeeper Lessons. I hold nothing back here and I share everything that works for me, my friends and mentors, and thousands of my students around the world to thrive in life and keep our lighthouses shining brightly. We will eventually be charging for this, but for now, for you, because you're listening to the podcast, it's free. So if you want to sign up, go to www.lightkeeper.club, fill out the application, and then check your inbox because it's magic. You actually have to open the emails to get the gifts inside. Otherwise, you can get access to my Relationships Beats Algorithms Facebook community and other free resources on the website. So just go to www.mindofgeorge.com and I'll see you in the next episode.